The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes communities thrive when individuals succeed. Working together, we can help create economic opportunity for all. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, May 13th. In today's news, Sweden may challenge the United States to extradite Julian Assange first. President Trump's top economic advisor admits that the new tariffs on China are really taxes on American consumers. And radical Islamist terrorists murder a Catholic priest in Africa. But first, the big idea. The first person to set foot on the moon had one last task before he came home. Neil Armstrong needed to pick up rocks, as many as he could carry, as interesting as he could find. The material he collected would constitute humanity's first samples taken from another world. With less than 10 minutes to go before the end of his moonwalk, Armstrong used tongs to pile about 20 rocks into a specialized collection box. Deciding it wasn't full enough, he scooped an additional 13 pounds of lunar soil into the container. Today, a tablespoon of that soil sits in a sealed dish in a locked and windowless lab at Johnson Space Center in Houston. It's a prized piece of the Apollo program's greatest scientific legacy, moon rocks. The United States hasn't taken any new material from the moon since the last Apollo landing in 1972. Since then, research on these rocks has transformed our understanding of the moon, revealing the circumstances of its birth and the reasons for its mottled face. Now, NASA has decided to release three new samples for analysis, samples that no scientist has ever touched. The upcoming experiments on vacuum-sealed cores and a long-frozen rock can be performed only once at the precise moment the samples are opened. That's why the materials have been held back since they were first retrieved from the moon. NASA was waiting for the right scientists with the right technologies at the right time. With Apollo 11's 50th anniversary this year and renewed interest in the moon ahead of a proposed return mission, they've decided that time is now. Before the Apollo 11 mission, scientists couldn't agree on where the moon came from. Now, the commonly accepted theory is that about four and a half billion years ago, a long-gone giant planet called Theia, named for the mother of the Greek moon goddess, smashed into the newly formed Earth. The impact shattered both Theia and the proto-Earth, and splashed millions of tons of material into space. Some of the rock coalesced in orbit around the Earth, and our satellite was born. The heaviest bits sank to the moon's center, while the light minerals floated to the top of the worldwide magma ocean and crystallized, forming the thin crust. The rocks and dust retrieved by Neil Armstrong are relics of this long-ago tumult. My colleague Sarah Kaplan reports that studying material from the moon up close has not completely explained its history. For example, researchers can find no molecular fingerprints of Theia, nor can scientists agree on how traces of water wound up inside the samples when the global magma ocean should have boiled it all away. NASA hopes that these three newly available samples, which represent half of all the lunar material the space agency has in reserve, will help answer these questions. Some researchers will look for traces of water in a rock that has been stored in a freezer for nearly 50 years. Others will seek out volatile molecules, including water, trapped inside tiny glass beads formed from lunar lava fountains that erupted billions of years ago. 
Several teams will work together to examine the materials inside pristine vacuum tubes that were sealed by astronauts while they were still on the moon. The way the rocks are layered may offer insight about landslides that shaped the lunar landscape in the absence of wind, weather, and life. Captured gases carry clues about how the material was altered by radiation, which in turn will help scientists understand how long the rock was exposed to light before astronauts boxed it up and carried it away. Scientists will spend the next few months rehearsing these experiments on practice tubes containing samples from Antarctica before the big event. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Sweden will reopen an investigation into a rape allegation made against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The decision opens the door to a tug of war between Swedish and U.S. authorities over who gets to put Assange on trial. He is currently serving 50 weeks in the U.K. for skipping bail in 2012 and hiding out in the Ecuadorian embassy for the last seven and a half years. Assange is already subject to extradition proceedings in the U.K. on computer hacking conspiracy charges filed by the U.S., The American government is due to lay out its case in detail at a hearing scheduled for June 12th. Legal experts, though, say that Sweden may have the stronger claim, considering the seriousness of the alleged sexual offenses and the fact that a British court already ordered Assange's extradition to the European neighbor in 2012 before the charges were put on ice. Number two, militant gunmen killed at least six people at a Catholic church in Burkina Faso before torching the space yesterday. The attack came during morning mass, and it occurred in the country's restive north, where militants linked to the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have been gaining ground. A priest was among those killed. Militants also set ablaze nearby shops and a medical clinic. It's the second attack on a Christian church in five weeks in Burkina Faso, where Islamist extremist violence has quadrupled over the past two years. Four worshippers and a pastor died in an attack on a Protestant congregation in late April. Burkina Faso attracted international attention last week when two French soldiers were killed during a nighttime military raid that freed four hostages, including an American woman. Number three, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor, contradicted Trump's false claim that the Chinese will pay for his tariffs on Chinese imports. In an appearance on Fox News Sunday, two days after U.S.-China trade talks collapsed with no news of a deal, Kudlow was asked by host Chris Wallace about Trump's claims. Wallace pointed out that it's not China that pays tariffs, it's the American importers and the American companies that pay what in effect is a tax increase and that often they pass it along to consumers. Kudlow said that was, quote, fair enough, but then he argued that, quote, both sides will suffer on this. How reassuring. The latest breakdown in the U.S.-China trade talks shows that the two countries still don't know how to effectively negotiate with each other. China has not immediately imposed retaliatory tariffs for the $200 billion of goods that Trump imposed tariffs on starting last Friday. But Xi Jinping is expected to make an announcement in the coming days. So where's the off-ramp here? Kudlow mentioned twice during that Fox interview that the American and Chinese presidents expect to meet again at the G20 summit in Japan at the end of June. Some kind of deal could be reached there. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, May 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.